The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World, Episode 8, The Byzantine Empire, Part 3. Our story of the Byzantine Empire brings us to the early 8th century and the rise of the Isaurian dynasty of imperial rulers, beginning with Leo III. Leo took control of the Byzantine Empire and the capital city of Constantinople was immediately besieged by the Umayyad Islamic Caliphate from their heartlands in Syria. As we discovered during the last episode, Leo was able to overcome this siege thanks to the use of the incendiary weapon known to history as Greek fire and some good fortune with the Umayyads suffering some defections and inclement weather conditions. The Umayyads retreated and the Byzantines under Leo III were able to move forward. Leo's legacy to history as a Byzantine ruler is also remembered for the impact that he would have on Byzantine Christianity and this would reverberate through history, through the era of the Christian Crusades and right up until the present day. Christianity was ushered from humble beginnings as a rebellious sect of Judaism by the Roman Empire who made it their state religion and oversaw the conversion of millions. Before this period, the Christians still set up patriarchates in major cities within the Roman Empire, including Alexandria, Antioch and Rome itself. When the iconic Constantine the Great encouraged Christianity in the 4th century, patriarchates were established in Constantinople and Jerusalem. These five patriarchates were recognised as the Pentarchy, which were officially the five supreme Christian patriarchates. Fast forward to the 8th century and three of the Pentarchy patriarchates had been lost to the Islamic Caliphate, namely Antioch, Jerusalem and Alexandria. So now it was just Rome and Constantinople. Rome would consider itself to be the spiritual home of Christian rule, with it being the Roman Empire's traditional home. Constantinople would consider itself to be the spiritual home of Christian rule, with it being the modern capital of the Roman world. So the seeds were there for there to be competition between the two patriarchates. 
The Byzantine Empire was a wounded empire. Its land losses were huge. All of its Levantine and North African possessions were now in the hands of the Islamic Caliphate and the lands of the Balkan and Italian peninsulas were under constant pressure from Germanic and steppe culture peoples. People before the modern world would often put misfortune down to the displeasure of the gods and Leo III may have had to face up to the fact that God was not smiling on the Byzantines and this may have been down to the fact that the people of the empire, God's subjects, had not been responsible in their religious observations and Leo determined that something should be done. Leo's Syrian heritage may have allowed him to become more exposed to monophysitism, which is a type of Christianity that insists that Jesus is wholly divine, and this may have inspired Leo to alter Christian worship within the Byzantine Empire. It was declared that Jesus' human form was not to be worshipped, and therefore any depictions of Jesus his mother and any of the saints were offensive to the religion and should be covered, removed or destroyed. Christian worship should be conducted without these icons of venerated beings or else be regarded as sacrilegious. Maybe this was the reason why God was not favouring the Byzantines. Such was the ferocity of Leo's iconoclastic approach that anybody found to be worshipping icons of saints were considered to be worshipping idols and as such they were persecuted with the idols being portrayed as having dangerous magical powers that could jeopardise the fortunes of the empire. With the Patriarchate of Constantinople now being coerced into an iconoclastic attitude, the Patriarchate of Rome took a position of opposition to this alteration and so a division would emerge between the last two remaining Christian Patriarchates of the original Pentarchy. Rome would continue to use icons irrespective of Constantinople's stance. Leo's iconoclastic attitude was not popular with many Christians. The actual Patriarch of Constantinople resigned his post and rebellions broke out which Leo needed to put down. When Rome opposed Leo, Leo attempted to transfer Italian lands to the sea of Constantinople, but the people of Italy were not particularly willing to change the nature of their worship. The English historian Bettany Hughes gives us an interesting perspective on the attitude of Leo III by citing the eruption of Thera as an influential event. Those of you who have followed the History of the World podcast will recall the story of the eruption of the volcano called Thera, which is at the centre of the Cycladic island of Santorini. The eruption took place around the middle of the 2nd millennium BCE and is considered to be a likely contributing factor in the downturn of Minoan culture. In the year 726, 
it erupted again, with an anger that destroyed the city of Thera, and may have caused Leo to believe that God was against the Byzantines. Leo would have noted that the Umayyad ruler, Yazid II, was doing comparatively well, with no furious volcanic eruptions destroying cities in his land. And Yazid would also be a ruler against icon worship, and this could have been the turning point for Leo, as he may have thought that Yazid was onto something. Not all of the emperors who followed Leo III in the Isaurian dynasty that ruled the Byzantine Empire were necessarily supportive of the iconoclasm that had been introduced, but the damage in the relationship between Constantinople and Rome had already been done, and now the competition that may have existed before between the two patriarchates would have moved up a level. If we go to the end of the 8th century, we find another Leo III, but this time he was the elected Patriarch of Rome, a position which is commonly referred to now as the Pope. Pope Leo's election was not hugely popular with some in Rome, as they desired the papacy for themselves. So Leo rather controversially turned to the King of the Franks, Charlemagne, for protection. Charlemagne obliged, and so Leo would take the bold step of proclaiming Charlemagne to be the true Roman emperor, even though there was still a Byzantine emperor, ruling what was traditionally the Roman Empire. The Byzantines had not come to Leo's aid as Charlemagne had done, and so Leo turned his back on those who had always been seen as the protectors of the Christian church. Charlemagne therefore became the first Holy Roman Emperor in the year 800, which is significant due to the fact that this newly formed entity and title would be highly influential over European politics for the next thousand years. Leo had an excuse in hand for calling Charlemagne the true spiritual Roman Emperor, by stating that the Byzantine Empire had come under the rule of a female. Irene of Athens Although Irene of Athens had been ruling the Byzantine Empire for only two or three years before Pope Leo III crowned King Charlemagne of the Franks, the new Roman Emperor in 800, her influence on the politics of the Byzantine Empire had been going on for much longer. She may have been in her 40s when she became the Byzantine Emperor, and she personally styled herself as such. However, she was a young lady in her 20s when she married the Byzantine Emperor Leo IV in 775. During Leo's infancy, Byzantine influence in Italy was waning. Ravenna in the north had been lost to the Lombards. Rome was the next target for the Lombards, but such was the symbolic significance of the Patriarchy of Rome that the Lombards granted the Patriarch an independent realm, which is referred to in history as the Papal States. 
imperial influence on the Italian peninsula for the Byzantines was now confined to lands in the south. It has been suggested that when Leo IV reached adulthood that he took part in a bride show ceremony in which he was able to select his wife from a number of candidates. This is how Irene of Athens became part of the Byzantine imperial royal family and the wife of the Byzantine emperor. Just a couple of years after the marriage, Irene would bear a child, a son who, on his father's death, would become Constantine VI. Constantine would be just nine years old when this happened in the year 780, and as such, Irene would rule as regent. So this was 20 years before the historic event where Pope Leo III crowned King Charlemagne the Holy Roman Emperor. What is more considerable is the fact that the iconoclastic nature of the Isaurian dynasty of the Byzantine rulers divided the Christian patriarchates of Rome and Constantinople and is cited as a major influence in the establishment of a Holy Roman Emperor in the first place. It's considerable when we contemplate the fact that Irene of Athens was from a place where icons were very important and she would be very clear-minded about her positive attitude towards the use of icons in Christian worship. So we can now see how much Pope Leo III's attitude towards the Byzantine Empire was a much more political attitude than a religious one. Irene set about reversing the policy of the empire in relation to icons. In a dynasty that is generally noted for its iconoclastic attitude, Irene stands out as a staunch iconophile. A council was summoned at the city of Nicaea, where the iconic Nicene Creed was declared that famously standardised Christian worship during the 4th century. It was at Nicaea in 787 that Irene oversaw the policy reversal. Irene showed a lot of agency in her role as the regent of the empire. Certainly the unusualness of a female in charge can attract the intervention of men who think that they know better, simply due to their gender, and this alone will likely bring out more agency in the female standing up for herself. However, it might have been this determined agency that suppressed the development of her son, Constantine VI, into becoming a sensible and strong emperor in his own right, constantly living in the shadows of his mother and being kept in the background by a mother who always knew better. She may well have had every right to feel that way though, as she proved herself more than capable of being an imperial leader, battling her enemies in the Balkans and on the Muslim front with a reasonable share of success. She would have to go through the shame of paying a tribute to the Muslims, but time and again in history I certainly believe that tribute payments are often unnecessarily portrayed as shameful, when actually we often see that they are a diplomatic choice that enables an empire or a kingdom to renegotiate its own international position by buying time for itself. 
so I feel inclined to cut Irini a bit of slack for that. One of Irini's biggest challenges came when her son came of age and those statesmen who were opposed to Irini could use the young Constantine VI as a pawn in their political games by manoeuvring Constantine out from under his mother's shadow and removing her as the regent. Irini was placed under house arrest, with Constantine being declared as the full emperor of the Byzantine Empire. It seems that Constantine did not have the guile to rule the empire and ran straight back to his strong mother for guidance, releasing her and asking that she be recognised as his fellow emperor. The biggest problem here was the amount of damage that Constantine had done during his time. Constantine had lost battles against the Muslims and the Bulgarians and mutilated members of his family who were perceived as threats to his rule. So political enemies had been created and this was the situation that Irini needed to clean up for her son on her arrival back on the political scene. Constantine shamefully divorced his first wife, bringing more scrutiny in his direction. And it was becoming increasingly clear that Constantine was a real liability to the Byzantine Empire. More and more people were looking towards Irini to step in and do something. Supporters of Irini who had had enough of her son caught up with him and he was held down and blinded. This marked the end of Constantine's rule, unable to continue, now deformed. He disappeared from public life and may have died from his injuries soon after the assault. Irini would become the Byzantine emperor in her own right refusing to be referred to as Empress. As the sole Byzantine Emperor, she wouldn't experience much glory and suffered the indignity of Pope Leo III proclaiming Charlemagne as the true Roman Emperor. There is a rumour that consideration was given to a marriage between Charlemagne and Irini to gloriously reunite the Roman Empire, but this never happened. What actually happened was that Irini was deposed by her finance minister, Nikiforos. Not even a year had passed when it was announced that she had died in exile on the island of Lesbos. She was since venerated by the Christian church for her iconophilic attitudes. After the reign of Irini, the Byzantines continued to be troubled by the Bulgarians on their northern front. The Bulgarians were taking lands from the Byzantines until a peace treaty between the two empires was signed in 815. The Byzantines were able to use this treaty as a bit of respite to be able to stabilise their economy the Bulgarians themselves would have to negotiate their own position with societies on their other borders, such as the Serbs and the Khazars, so the pressure in Thracian territories was not as high. 
The emperor in the middle of the 9th century was Michael the Drunkard. This name is not a glowing reference for the emperor, but Michael's performance as the emperor was probably not quite as bad as his name might suggest. During Michael's tenure as Emperor Michael III of the Byzantine Empire, the empire experienced a period of financial stability too. He originally became the emperor as an infant under the regency of his mother, the Empress Theodora. Theodora would dismiss iconoclasm once and for all, restoring icons to worship, much to the pleasure of the many monasteries who had always stood up for icons. Mikhail himself would end up being assassinated at the command of a man who he had recently made his co-ruler, a man called Basil the Macedonian. Mikhail was just 27 years old. Basil would likely spread negative propaganda about Mikhail in order to justify Mikhail's death being a good thing for the empire and this may have led to him being known as Mikhail the Drunkard but we certainly feel that Mikhail left the empire in a stronger position than when he came to it. The Macedonian Dynasty As the sole ruler of the Byzantine Empire, Basil the Macedonian ruled as Basil I and generally speaking, the Byzantine Empire, despite being a fraction of the size it was originally, was now familiar with its lesser extent and able to rebuild its economy and international status based around it. Basil would be the first ruler of now what is referred to as the Macedonian dynasty of rulers of the Byzantine Empire and this dynasty would last considerably longer than any other ruling dynasty of the Eastern Roman Empire before it. The religious and therefore political relationship between Constantinople and Rome continued to deteriorate with there being less and less respect being shown to each other by the two patriarchates. The Byzantines still held territories in the south of Italy and the papal states of Rome cared very little about it. The Achlobids of Ifriqiya in North Africa launched an invasion of Byzantine Sicily during the 9th century and the Byzantines were quite stretched in terms of their ability to support a defence of the island against the Muslim invaders. Rome did not seem to be remotely interested in supporting their Roman cousins. The Aglobids would gradually gain more and more influence on the island, slowly pushing the Byzantines off. By the end of the 9th century, hostilities with the Abbasids, who now ruled the Islamic Caliphate in the Middle East, and the Bulgarians really started taking up all of the Byzantines' energy once again. The Byzantines had used the relative peace of the 9th century to consolidate their army and navy and strengthen their position in southern Italy, even if they were struggling to defend their Sicilian interests. 
despite the Byzantine Empire making an alliance with the Magyars against the Bulgarians, the Bulgarians were still able to enter the 10th century with a lucrative peace agreement from the Byzantine Empire. This is also the time when we see the Bulgarians successfully push the Magyars west and into the lands of the modern country of Hungary, which is somewhat the birth of the Hungarian nation. Another new entity on Byzantine borderlands from this period in history are the people called the Rus. As with the Magyars, the Rus' specific origin is the subject of speculation, but the general consensus is that they originated from Scandinavia and migrated southeast, not completely unlike the Gothic migration a few centuries earlier. By the 10th century, the Rus' had settled and founded a capital city at Kiev, which is the modern capital city of the country of Ukraine. Inevitably, the Kievan Rus would come into conflict with the Byzantines, with both nations having interests in the lands around the Black Sea. The Kievan Rus besieged Constantinople unsuccessfully in 941, but Constantinople was a city that was now all too familiar with being besieged, and this might have even been the sixth time that the city was besieged in a 100-year period, either by the Rus or the Bulgarians. Each siege was unsuccessful in terms of a conquest, but in terms of political strategy, the besiegers may have felt that there were rewards for their aggression. The Byzantine Empire had established its own position in terms of its relationship with Christianity and it would stand in complete defiance of the Papal States of Rome, whose Pope would stand as the supreme pontiff of the Christian Church. In contrast, the Byzantine emperors regarded themselves as the head of the Christian Church, ruling under the approval of God and responsible for the religious matters of the state the emperor would summon his patriarch to duty. In Rome, the patriarch was in charge and was the representative of God who crowned the emperor, in this case, the Holy Roman Emperor. The Byzantine Emperor Constantine VII wrote a book called The Administrando Imperio, which he wrote as a guide for his young son on how to govern the empire. Rather than this having any instruction regarding religious matters, it was more geared towards international diplomacy, including a knowledge of the recent history of the areas in question. His son was Romanos II, who was a young man in his twenties, and it seems that rather than follow his father's written advice, he was far more interested in sexual deviance and drinking. While the emperor, the Byzantines had taken back control of the island of Crete, which had fallen under the control of Muslims back in the 9th century, who were continually raiding the lands in and around the Aegean Sea. The man responsible for regaining Crete was Nikiforos Phokas. The bad historical account of Romanos's character could be thanks to his wife, Theophano. Theophano bore children to Romanos, 
that would include two future Byzantine emperors called Basil and Constantine. Romanos was no more than 25 years of age when he became ill and died. The popularity of the great military general Nikiforos enabled him to gain the support necessary to grab the imperial throne and be proclaimed as Nikiforos II. Upon his accession, he married the Empress Fiafano and became the stepfather of her children. Therefore, Theophano's children were legitimised under the rule of a popular emperor and Nikiforos may have gained something that he'd always had an eye on, the imperial throne. This is all speculation, of course, but maybe there was more to Romanos's untimely death than meets the eye. Even though Nikiforos was the emperor, his heart remained as a military leader. We know that he had to abandon Sicily to Muslim rule since the North African Muslims had invaded in the previous century. However, this is highly forgivable when we see what he achieved in the lands of the East. Since the rule of Justinian back in the 7th century and when the Umayyad Caliph Abd al-Malik was making great advances into Byzantine territory, the island of Cyprus had become a condominium, which means that the overlordship of the island was shared as it was never worth the exhausting battles despite the tensions between the Byzantines and the Muslims. Three centuries later, and Nikiforos successfully broke off this situation, bringing Cyprus back under Byzantine rule. Not only that, but he successfully retook the city of Antioch, once again originally lost during the Arab conquests of the 7th century. The internal unrest of the Muslim Middle East offered these great opportunities to Nikiforos, who capitalised on them gloriously. Nikiforos was an excellent military leader. The problem was, that that is exactly what he was. As the emperor of the empire, he raised taxes to fund his campaigns and alienated the church, which made him very unpopular in Constantinople on an administrative level. Something needed to be done. Nikiforos's wife, Theophano, may have been fearing for her children and was quite happy to side with the disrespected nephew of Nikiforos whose name was John Simiscus. John was a capable military man and had supported his uncle's rise to power. It does seem that Nikiforos spent a lot of his reign looking over his shoulder with various people being imprisoned or exiled, with his nephew John being one of them. So when John was invited to be part of an overthrowing of his uncle as the Byzantine Empire, he was in. It seems as though Nikiforos's own wife, Theophano, was in as well, with rumours of her having an affair with John Simiscus. It is said that Theophano left the bedchamber unlocked so that John could enter with his men and murder Nikiforos while he slept. John became the new Byzantine emperor, 
and rather than do what his uncle did and marry Theophano, he would exile her. Her reputation in Constantinople was not favourable, so marriage to her would have damaged his own reputation. Instead, he married the daughter of the wise old emperor who had died just ten years earlier, Constantine VII, and her name was Theodora. Theodora was a sister-in-law of Theophano via Theophano's first marriage to Emperor Romanos II. Under John, the Byzantine Empire would continue to prosper. The Kievan Rus was being ruled by their energetic crown prince, Svetislav. Svetislav had been causing serious problems for his neighbours in the Khazar Khaganate, which likely led to its extinction as a distinct nation and also to the Bulgarians, who were to some degree made subject to the Kievan Rus. Svetislav would force the Bulgarians to join his campaigns against the Byzantine Empire. While garrisoned at the fortress of Dorostolon, which is at the modern city of Silistra, on the Bulgarian banks of the Danube River, John and his Byzantine army besieged them. After two months of siege, the city was starving and Sviatoslav was shamed into coming to terms with the Byzantines, which meant that the Kievan Rus had to surrender all of their Bulgarian lands and retreat. This was a great victory for John, who was able to get into a position of superiority over the Bulgarians as a consequence. Sviatoslav was killed while on his way back to Kiev by local peoples. John Simiskis died on his way back from Syria, where he had successfully made gains consolidating the newly reclaimed city of Antioch, which his uncle had won back for the Byzantines, and taking advantage of the instabilities of the Islamic world as the dynasties rivalled against one another, trying to take their spoils of the collapsing Abbasid Caliphate. He may have been poisoned, but this is just pure speculation. Upon his death, the imperial throne would pass to the eldest son of Theophano, Basil, whose father, the Emperor Romanos II died as a young man before Nikephoros II Phokas came and took the throne and his wife. Basil earned himself a reputation, but we will save that story until the next episode. The Byzantine Empire changed during the period between the 8th and 10th centuries. It was a change made out of necessity. Firstly, they had to accept their territorial losses to the Islamic and Germanic tribes on their various borderlands. They had to accept that they were not Trajan's Roman Empire and that they were a product of the Roman Empire. This meant that they needed to accept their limitations and accept the medieval world for what it was. Nowadays, the medieval world was riddled with many powerful entities all fighting for their piece of land, which a thousand years earlier were the spoils of the most dominant entities of their respective global region who subjugated all around them. Now, everyone was powerful and capable 
of advanced warfare with a social structure that would support their populations learned from many successful rulers and nations that had existed before them. The Byzantine Empire had downsized, consolidated and used its rich culture and impenetrable capital city to unite the people with a belief in their national identity, even if not the particular emperor who was leading them. With this new attitude, the Byzantine Empire, by the end of the reign of John Simiscus, was undoubtedly the most dominant power of their area of the world. It would take a new power to threaten that position. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast. Very interesting to uh, track the development of the Byzantine Empire and how it uh, had to change over the centuries and also all of the players that were emerging around uh, around the lands of the Byzantine Empire and uh, and, this, and certainly each and every one of them had a had a very uh, a very definite effect on the direction of the world at this at this uh, point in history. So uh, very interesting, and we're on the cusp of a very very important point in the history of the Byzantine Empire. So uh, with each passing century, a new set of problems and uh, issues needed to be faced. And uh, of course, uh, we'll be continuing that story next week. Um, I'd just like to uh, say, uh, I hope you all have had a lovely Christmas and uh, it's good to be back. And uh, this is the last podcast of 2021, of course. And uh, next week will be the first podcast of 2022 and it will be the final part in the four-part chronological story of the Byzantine Empire before we focus on some of the key battles throughout the month of January that the Byzantines faced throughout their tenure. Um, Moving on now. The Ancient World Cup. So, this week... Uh, was Group G of the Ancient World Cup. And uh, our teams were the Aksumites, the Picts, the Kassites and the Babylonians. So let's uh, let's announce the results of that group. Uh, in first place, the runaway winners of the group were the Babylonians with 68% of the votes. Um, it's not quite the highest we've had, but certainly sort of up there amongst the the big winners uh, that we've had so far in this uh, in this uh, ancient World Cup. It could be among the favourites to go deep into the competition, to go a long way into the competition, and uh, you know we may be starting to see some of those teams that might have a chance of getting through to the quarterfinals or even further. Um, we uh, we now announce the second place team and the team that will progress to the next round of the competition. Um, they uh, achieved 22% of the vote and they were the Picts. So the Picts are a Celtic or, or believed to be influenced to some degree by Celts. 
um, of the British Isles and uh, as such they uh, invoke a lot of romantic um, feelings of re relating to sort of the, the Celtic cultures of the British Isles and those sort of painted faces that um, that give them their name, the Picts, and obviously the ancestors of uh, of what some would regard to be modern Celtic um, heritage people of the British Isles. So um, there's a lot of uh, romantic sentiment for the Picts there, which carries them through into the next round. The uh, the team that finished third with seven percent were the Cassites. And the team that finished bottom of the group, which which uh, upset it upset me a little bit because uh, because the Ethiopians are very close to my heart, and so with two, just two percent of the vote, unfortunately, were the Aksumites, uh, who built those fantastic obelisks uh, um, that we that can still be seen to this day, can still be visited. But anyway, that's uh, that's uh, the result of the group and uh, the Babylonians and the Picts have made it through. The Kassites and the Aksumites are out. Now, moving on now to Group H and it's quite uh, quite a strange group, this. For some reason, the drawer has, has uh, brought out um, a couple of Chinese cultures um, that will face each other in the group stage. But of course... At this stage, uh, two teams can qualify, so they could both progress. However, let's see uh, exactly who they are and who they're up against. So this is Group H now, which will the voting will take place uh, from now, um, I believe, right up until um, New Year's Day. Um, so we've got, uh, firstly, the Mitanni who were a, a culture who um, who sort of stood up against the mighty Assyrians and the Hittites and sort of carved out their own their own kingdom and their own imperial realm uh, for a good century, um, the Mitanni during the uh, second millennium BCE. Um, next, we've got Han China. Han China, which are... Uh, strongly regarded as, as the first real significant imperial dynasty of, of China. That, that if we if we disregard the Qin, who reigned briefly and were pretty much centred around one emperor, um, the Han were really uh, sort of in charge of of China for the, for around four centuries. Um, really sort of considered to be the classical age of China, and many advances made. Um, the uh, the third team are Zhou China. Now Zhou China is interesting because it is known to be the longest uh, dynasty of China. They predate the Han, and it's really uh, the it's really um, symbolised by the the changing nature of Zhou China when um, obviously the power sort of diminished into more of a sort of a uh, spiritual. Um, rule a bit like the Abbasids if you like and uh, it, it's the uh, the Warring States period and the uh, the spring and autumn period and uh, the emergence of Confucianism that kind of thing that's Joe China and then uh, the final team are the Teotihuacanos who um, if you may remember became this very powerful um, 
entity in uh, the lands of, of Mexico, very near to Mexico City, was their, their central base around the city of Teotihuacano itself and these incredible pyramids. We've got this like legacy of a, of a great city um and it and that's sort of the age of the sort of the the early first millennium so an interesting group and it'll be interesting to see how people vote so it'll be the mitanni the han chinese the joe chinese and the teotihuacanos listener messages and reviews okay so um this week uh we've received uh a message from Nathan Cox, who, who's uh, just written in, said, how many volumes are you planning to do on the podcast? Well, um, I've probably mentioned this in the past, but the idea being that there's going to be seven main volumes to the podcast. So we'll, uh, volume five will be on the sort of the early modern renaissance world, that, that era. Um Volume six will be on the, the imperial world uh, or the industrial world, if if you you could call it either one. Uh, and then um, the volume seven will concentrate very much on the modern world, which is fundamentally the, the past 100 years. Um, so it's a seven volume project that we're looking to, to do here. Uh, David Almagor has put, hi Chris, I am David from Israel, the Holy Land. I'm almost caught up just finishing Volume 3, enjoying your podcast tremendously. I'm lucky to live in a land where a significant part of human prehistory and history has happened. Here you can take a very short trip and go back 2 million or 3,000 years back and experience in world history. You are doing a fantastic job. I love the accent, humour and relaxed manner. You took on a formidable assignment and are performing it with flying colours. Keep up this excellent work. I just joined your Illuminati. Well, thank you, David. Thank you for writing in. Thank you so much for joining the Illuminati. Yes, you are now a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Thanks to the fact that you now make contributions. And if you, if you, if any of you would like to make a contribution to the project, you can. You can go to the History of the World website. And click on the Patreon link, you can sign up and make uh, a monthly contribution. You can qualify for rewards and uh, have the the warm feeling of knowing that you're contributing to something uh, very special and that you will be uh, recognised as a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, as has David Almagor himself, Oliver Kennedy, James A. Hugh, Sophie Fung and People With Ideas, all now lifelong members of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Uh, let's um, let's find out. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Israel there. Um, and um, yeah, David, it was a fantastic area of the world, really, to discuss. I, I was lucky enough to go to Jerusalem many, many years ago. And uh, I saw the Wailing Wall and uh, the the um, the Tomb of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, a lot of great history there, and uh, certainly, of course, uh, a lot of modern um, history being made in that area of the world all the time, as well as 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 anyone who who watches the news will be well aware. So, um, 
incredible. Um, you know, we, we talk about the um, the emergence of the uh, Neolithic uh, revolution. Is you know these these lands are fundamental to that story and the first contact between um, between modern humans and Neanderthals could have happened in 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 sort of the area of the world in and around Israel. So it really is a, a such an important part of the world. Um, we've uh, also had a message uh, from Josh Denton. Now, funnily enough, talking about Neanderthals, I've, he's put, Good day, I've just found your podcast. It's incredible. I love how much effort you've put into it. With Neanderthal and the big nose and chest... There is a current theory that it wasn't for humidifying the cold air, but to deliver more oxygen to the blood as their lifestyle and hunting style was less uh, attritious and more hard and fast. This required huge amounts of energy to escape predators or attack prey. Being built similar to a Neanderthal, I found this interesting. My mate is long and lean and can go for hours at most activities. Me, I lift bigger and sprint faster, but not as long, except in the surf. My extra layers of bulk keep me warmer. He's wearing a wetty all year round. Keep up the amazing work, stay safe and have a great Christmas. Well, thank you, Josh. A very good message there. A very interesting message. I hope you're, uh, I hope you're enjoying the surf. And um, yep, yeah, I think um, you know that cannot be discounted. It does make sense, doesn't it? Those huge nostrils being able to absorb more oxygen into the bloodstream, and uh, and certainly um, will in turn allow the Neanderthals to have the. Uh, the relevant uh, energy in order to survive in that harsh climate of the uh, of the cold European lands. So, um, yeah, very good theory, Josh. And it'd be interesting to see if there's any sort of articles written um, that um, sort of validate uh, that to a degree. So um, I'm, I'm sure there probably is if, you, if you've mentioned it yourself. So... Um, People with ideas of uh, as as put, I have been following for a little while now, and figure it's only right that I give some value back in return. Looking forward to contributing some more and earning my own episode. Wishing you the best of success, Chris. The amount of work you put into this, uh, you deserve it. Uh, from Javier, I'm going to guess that's a Javier. I'm going to guess that's what uh, how I pronounce your name, um, but. Uh, Thank you so much, and uh, thank you so much, uh, Javier, for um, for contributing to the podcast. It really does make a difference. It enables me to contribute um, more in terms of uh, the purchase of resources uh, such as books um, in order to make the podcast as good as I can possibly make it. So thank you very much. Thank you to everyone who has... Um, who has written in, who has contributed, and and thank you to everyone who has been a part of this podcast throughout 2021 and sort of probably podcasting has taken a very uh, important place in our lives and, you know, certainly with everything that has been going on in the last two years in the world with many of us um, being made to stay at home and, and the way that we spend our time now being changed 
um, you know, maybe podcasts have become a much more relevant part of your own personal lives. And uh, and I hope that um, by uh, creating this podcast, that I'm able to sort of give something back to you and uh, to give you uh, something to look forward to and uh, to even sort of excite your grey matter enough for you to want to sort of investigate other people's work. Uh, you know, that's what it's all about, really. We're, we're learning about history, learning new things and, and enjoying that experience. So um, many, many thanks. And, um, of course, um, I'd like to thank you all for supporting the podcast throughout 2021. Next week, we'll be continuing the story of the Byzantine Empire and we'll be sort of leading it up to a point where there will be an inevitable clash between uh, the Byzantine Empire and their Asiatic enemies. And um, this will sort of try, we'll be sort of drawing uh, a close to the Byzantine story somewhat, although we'll, we'll sort of cliffhanger it a bit because we're going to devote a special episode as well um, to that fateful clash in the 15th century as well. And that'll be... Oh dear, what are we on? Episode 8 now. It'll probably be episode 12, I would imagine. So um, lots to look forward to in the next few episodes. But uh, as for this episode and for all the 2021 episodes, that's it now, all done and dusted. Our next episode will be in 2022. So until then, we'll look forward to hooking up again in the new year so i'd like to wish you all a happy new year celebrate safely and as always be good the history of the world podcast written and presented by chris hasler please consider making a financial contribution by going to the history of the world podcast.com website and clicking on the patreon link email the show at history of the world podcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time.